Good morning. It was nice to turn the clock back uh, one hour this morning. It occurred to me as I was turning my clock back, it would be nice to turn it back uh, 24 hours or um, a week or seven or eight years or maybe even to the beginning of my uh, life. And uh, if I had an opportunity to do that, there were a lot of things I'd probably do different. I would uh, chart and plan my life uh, somewhat differently than than, uh, the way it's gone. However, we can't do that. What's past is past. Whatever happened to us in the past has happened to us. And though we are today very much what the past has made us, there's really nothing that we can do to undo what's happened in in the past. I uh, took a long walk last week along the uh, road that, that's under the green belt along the ditch. And as I walked by um, Garden City, looked down at some of those houses, I was reminded of, of the, the kids, many of the, the young high school age kids, teenagers, that live in those houses. Some of those houses sold three, four, five kids that are living together because they've been thrown out of their homes. They're basically homeless kids, though they have a house to live in. I've been told about uh, their situation from friends of mine and from my oldest son, who's a police officer, and from people who are working with, uh, with Young Life. And your heart goes out to them because they really don't have a chance. You wonder what will happen to them in years to come. Many of them, I'm sure, will end up in prison. A lot of them are drug abusers. A lot of them are dealers. Many of them already are alcoholic, substance abusers of various kinds. And uh, we look at them and we say, what chance do they have? They were flawed and marred from the very beginning. Will they ever make it? And can they be blamed for what happens to them? Well, there is a story, I think, that helps us. It's the story of Jephthah in Judges 11. Would you turn there with me, please? Judges chapter 11. Paul assures us that all Scripture, and he had in mind the Old Testament because that's the only Scripture he had, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for a teaching and reproof and encouragement. So we can grow up, be mature in all ways. And uh, I must confess, as I first read through this passage, I wondered what the prophet was. Not the P-R-O-P-H-E-T prophet, but uh, the P-R-O-F-I-T prophet, the advantage. What can we gain from this this account? It's It's a difficult story. But... As I began to read it, I began to see something in this story that I've never seen before. Let me begin by reading chapter 11, verse 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. He was a tough kid. That's the word that's used for Israel's military aristocracy. It's the word that the angel used when he addressed Gideon. A strong man is the word, tough guy. Jephthah was one of those people that had to grow up tough because he had a terrible upbringing. His father was Gilead. His father was a very prominent individual 
If not the man who gave his name to this whole region in Transjordan, at least one of Gilead's descendants, very wealthy, powerful, influential man. But his mother was a hooker. That's the word that's that's used. There are a couple of words in Hebrew for a prostitute. One is uh, the counterpart of what we would, I suppose, call to uh, call today a call girl, a high class prostitute. This is the word for a common prostitute, not a cult uh, harlot, but rather a, just a common streetwalker. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. The first translation we know anything about of the Old Testament refers to, to her as a common harlot. She's a whore. And that was, uh, that was Gideon's mother. And very early in his life, he got tossed out of his home. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. He was a married man, you see. This, the, the birth of uh, Jephthah was uh, just the product of this casual relationship he had with this prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. Actually, a strange woman, that's the way they refer to Canaanites. So she was a Canaanite prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tov, which is way up north on the Euphrates River, clear outside of Israel. He's driven out of his country. And uh, he took up with a group of adventurers, a street gang, that uh, gathered uh, around him and, and followed him. What chance! did this young man have? He was probably thrown out of his house when he was in his early teenagers and uh, picked up with a group of kids that had been similarly abused. You know, the, the scriptures are necessarily terse. We don't have all the facts. You read between the lines and you, you can picture some of the pathos in this young man's life, the hurt and the pain. Outside he was, he was tough, street fighter. But inside, there was so much hurt, so much insecurity, so much like some of you. <laughs> I know some of you men, on the outside, you're so tough, and inside, you've been hurt so deeply. And some of you women who are the products of alcoholic homes, your adult children of, of alcoholics, or you were sexually abused by your father or by your, your, your uh, siblings, or you were battered, or you were emotionally abused in various ways. And if, if that's true, you, you, know, you just grow up tough. You learn how to handle things. But there's so much pain inside. And that seems to have been true of, of Jeff. He was one of those that C.S. Lewis describes as growing up with a, with a hard machine to drive. A lot of forces, a lot of passions, a lot of disturbance inside that... Uh, that compelled him in a certain direction, as, as we'll see. Uh, opportunity knocked sometime later, we're told in verse 4, when the Ammonites made war on Israel. The Ammonites were actually Israel's uh, ancient uh, relatives, descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. And they made war on the Israelites that lived across the Jordan, over in modern-day Jordan, what, what was called Transjordan back then. And uh, the elders of Gilead went out to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They sent a mission up to uh, 
Mesopotamia, and they brought this young man back, and they said, come be our commander, our military commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said, in effect, why didn't you protect me before? You knew what was happening to me. Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gideon said to him, nevertheless, we're turning, of Gilead turned, uh, said to him, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you'll be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jeff had a very difficult time believing that that would be true because he'd been so mistreated by these elders before, betrayed. And so he says in verse 9, suppose you do take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your hand, uh, your head? And the elders replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord. In Mizpah, they ratified this contract and uh, gave each other a high five. And Jephthah went off to war. Now, what Jephthah does initially is to negotiate for peace. He sues for peace. And this, by the way, is something that happened in, in ancient times. This is, this is true to the culture of this time. They tried to settle disputes first peaceably. And he sent a messenger to the Ammonite king with the question, Why have you attacked our country? And uh, the king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messenger, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the, to the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan, I give it back peaceably. And what follows is a series of charges and countercharges between the, the two uh, combatants, uh, or would-be combatants, Jephthah and, and the Ammonites. And the gist of it is this. I'm not going to take time to read it. Uh, the Ammonites said, give us back our land. Jephthah said, it isn't your land. <laughs> it hadn't been your land for 300 years. The Amorites took it from you. We took it from the Amorites. Uh, we have just as much right to it as, as you do. And we've lived with you peaceably for 300 years. You've lived in and around us. We've never given you any trouble. We've never hassled you. Why are you giving us such a hard time? But negotiations broke down. The king of Ammon, uh, of Ammon, we're told in verse 28, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. So they settled the matter by combat. Verse 29. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Indication of God's blessing. He was filled and flooded with the Spirit of God for this conflict. He crossed Gilead in Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the other tribes in Transjordan. Passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And then there follows a very brief account of the battle and the victory in verse 32. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He went out with his motley crew of street uh, thugs, and he uh, he defeated them, and he did so because the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns from Aror to the vicinity of Meneth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus, Israel subdued Ammon, and uh, so the battle is over. And this account is so brief; it makes me think that the battle is actually the small change of the story. The really significant and important fact is the vow that, uh, that Jephthah made. Everything centers around this deal, this bargain that he made with God. Look at verse uh, 30. Now, this is the passage that causes commentators so much consternation. They don't know what to do with this. Let's see if we can figure it out. Verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And it was okay to make vows in those days. Vows were not mandated. 
in the Old Testament. But they were regulated. If you made you made a vow, you were supposed to follow through with it. There was always provision for forgiveness if you didn't. But the point seems to be if you give your word to someone, you write a contract, you sign the bottom line, then you, you follow through with your con- contract. Same would be true of your relationship to God. You make that commitment, then you follow through. So he, he makes a vow. It's, it's a deal. It's a bargain with God. You do this for me, and I'll do this for you. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So then Jephthah went out to fight, and when he returned in verse 34 to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of tambourines, he was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. I get the impression he also had no wife. That he was perhaps living alone at this time with his daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now the question is, it's, is this. It's very obvious. What can we make of this, of this vow? Some commentators say, well, uh, what, what, what uh, Jephthah promised was that whatever animal came out of the front door of his house, uh, his dog or his cat, he would sacrifice that to the Lord. Some have said if it was a cat, it would be no sacrifice, right? (laughs) I like uh, Churchill's uh, statement. He says, uh, uh, cats look down on you, dogs look up at you, but pigs treat you as an equal. I like that. (laughs) But uh, it's highly unlikely that that Gideon... uh, plan to offer an animal sacrifice. In the first place, people back then didn't keep pets the way we do. They didn't have dogs and cats in their house. And secondly, Gideon, or Jephthah knew very well uh, that uh, the law required certain sacrifices. The sacrifices were clearly spelled out, and it would be utterly inappropriate, disobedience, as a matter of fact, to offer up a dog or, or some other animal that came through the front door. The rabbis have always recognized that Jephthah had in mind a human coming through the door. As a matter of fact, the Septuagint, again, this Greek uh, translation that I mentioned to you earlier, actually translates this phrase, whoever comes out. So they were aware that he was talking about a human being. So the question then is, is this an animal? Was this a human sacrifice that Jephthah uh, uh, envisioned? Did he actually plan to place his daughter on the altar and slay her, and then burn her as a burnt offering to God? Is this what he had in mind? 
Now, some people would say yes. For myself, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And here's why. In the first place, human sacrifice is roundly condemned in the Old Testament. And Jephthah knew the law. He knew it very well. As a matter of fact, uh, in the report of the negotiations with the Ammonites, he quotes extensively from what we would call Numbers 22. They didn't have versification in those days, but he quotes from the section of the law that's, that's in the book of Numbers. So he was, he was familiar with, with the law, and he knew that the law prohibited uh, human sacrifice. Human sacrifice, as a matter of fact, was an abomination to God. Uh, turn with me back to the book of Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 1. <clears throat> this is just one of four passages that deals with human sacrifice. And here, uh, a human offering is unequivocally prohibited. Say to the Israelites, any Israelite or any alien living in Israel who gives any of his children a Moloch, passes them through the fire, kills them, must be put to death. It's a capital offense in Israel. The people of the community are to stone him. I will set my face against that man and I'll cut him off from his people. For by giving his children a Moloch, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the people of the community close their eyes when that man gives one of his children to Moloch and they fail to put him to death, I'll set my face against that man and his family and will cut off from their people both him and all who follow him and prostituting themselves uh, to Moloch. Now, God is uh, very patient with ignorance. Uh, recall the way he responded to, uh, to Gideon's fleeces. He's very tolerant of those who try to do what's right and who occasionally fail, but blatant disobedience is something else. And it is, it is inconceivable to me that God would, would bless this vow and give Jephthah victory over the Ammonites if this were a human sacrifice. Utterly inconceivable. You'll notice the way the author puts it. Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. This was after he had taken the vow. And then in verse 36, the young woman herself says, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of your, of your enemies. So I, I just cannot believe that uh, Gideon could have acted in blatant disobedience and been so blessed. The other reason why I think uh, the author is not talking about human sacrifice here is that the language itself doesn't demand it. The uh, phrase, whatever comes out of the door of my house will be the Lord's. That phrase, will be the Lord's, is never used of a burnt offering in the Old Testament, but it is used of offering up your firstborn to God. That was, that was a practice in Israel. Not as a literal sacrifice, but as a symbolic sacrifice. A burnt offering in the Old Testament is a symbol of giving up everything to God. And one of the requirements of the law is that the first child that opened the womb, is the way the law put it, was to be given to God, dedicated to God, a sort of down payment on the uh, on the further payment of your of your whole family to God. In other words, it's a way of symbolizing your whole family, all of your children, you, your husband, and everyone in your household belong to God. So the firstborn will be the Lord's is the way the text puts it. So for myself, I don't think 
that uh, Jephthah offered up his child as a sacrifice, I think what he did is offer her up as a perpetual virgin, a kind of vestal virgin. He committed her into the Lord's hands. She went off to Mizpah or Shiloh, wherever the sanctuary was at that time. And like Samuel, she uh, took a vow of perpetual virginity and she served the Lord in some capacity in the temple, like Anna, who was in the temple when the Lord came. Like Roman Catholic nuns do today, like, like Catholic priests who take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and they become virgins forever, see. And I think this is what happened, and this is why the emphasis on the text is on her virginity, because she goes off into the hills, and she bewails the fact that she never married, and she bewails her virginity. And as a matter of fact, uh, the text actually says that the sacrifice consisted of of her virginity, verse 39. After two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. See, that's the emphasis of the text. Now, we say, what's the big deal with that? You know, you go up and visit her. That's not so heart-rending. Oh, it was, though, in those times. It was. Because to be childless is one of the worst things that could happen to you. It's actually a a sign of judgment in the Old Testament. In Psalm 78, uh, one of those imprecatory, well, it's not imprecatory psalms, actually talking about Israel. Psalmist says, uh, because of Israel's sins, her virgins would never marry. Talking about a time of judgment uh, on the nation. And uh, uh, in the law, uh, in, in the section dealing with incest, Israel was told that if a man had sexual intercourse with his aunt, the two would be childless. It's a sign of, of judgment. So uh, being childless is nothing to be taken lightly. We don't think that's so serious today, but for them it was a terrible, terrible tragedy. It's interesting the way the text puts it. He died alone, Jephthah did. He had no grandchildren, but notice the, the judges that succeeded him. Verse 8, Ibsen of Bethlehem. It's another Bethlehem, one in Ephraim. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. Verse 13, Abdon, son of Hillel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. But uh, Jephthah went to his grave without any grandchildren. His daughter was separated from him, so he died alone, basically. Now, there's an interesting story that follows. Uh, sometimes when trouble comes, it comes in bunches. And uh, chapter 12 reports on a civil war. I'm not going to take time to read it because I don't have time. But the Ephraimites, that's one of the tribes in Israel, the tribe of Ephraim, a proud, arrogant tribe. They wanted to assert their leadership in Israel. And they got angry because they weren't uh, considered in this battle. They weren't taken along and... Jephthah says, well, I, I asked, and you, did, you didn't want to participate. And so they attacked their brothers. They went to war against Jephthah and the Gileadites. And Jephthah wreaked terrible vengeance on them. Must have come out of his background and in the violence of this young man. And he, he decimated the tribe, utterly decimated it. From a historical human standpoint, this is the reason that Judah, the tribe from which all the, the kings came, rose in ascendancy and became the more, most powerful uh, tribe in, in, in Israel. It's because the Ephraimites never again 
uh, had enough people to uh, to exert any leadership on the nation. So it was Jephthah's reaction against this assault upon him, this cruel reaction that uh, that made him persona non grata in Israel. I get the impression that he went to his his grave unliked and unheralded and and forgotten. He 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 died uh, in an unmarked grave. Notice how the the author puts it. Um, at the end of uh, this section, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, uh, verse 7, Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the, the Gileadite died and was buried in a, in a town in Gilead. He's just buried in a town. We don't even know where, where he's buried. And see, again, that's very important to a Semite, to be buried in your homeland. And, and again, interestingly enough, the, the judges who succeeded him, Ibsen of Bethlehem, uh, he was buried in Bethlehem. Not the Bethlehem we know in Judah, but the Bethlehem up in Ephraim. And after him, Elon, the Zebulonite, led Israel ten years, and he was buried in Aijalon. And then Abdon died, and he was buried in Pirithon in Ephraim. The, these three judges were buried in the heartland of Israel. But Jephthah was buried in some unmarked grave in a, in some, away from the center of of his homelands. And you just get the impression that his whole life was tragic from beginning to end. And we say, well, what's the significance of this, of this man's life? His vow is unnecessary. His, his vow is actually hurtful. His vow uh, distorted his life to the end of his days. And, and he did this terrible thing to his brothers, the Ephraimites. And, and, he, and he ended his life disastrously. Such a tragic, tragic figure. And what can we say about him? Well, I just can't help but think of those of you here in our congregation who were badly treated as you were growing up. You did grow up in alcoholic homes. And you were abused in various ways. And you are driving a hard machine. Uh, you've made some decisions along the way that have harmed you. You've done some things because of your background that have damaged your, your body and, and your soul. And there's really nothing you could do about it. You, it wasn't your fault. You didn't ask for the parents that you got. You may have been raised in a, a difficult home setting and you didn't know what a good man looked like and you married a bad man and, and you've had to, to reap the consequences of a very harmful marriage. And it's been very hurtful and and I'm sure from time to time you speculate on why all of this has happened to you. And if I could just go back and redo my life, I'd do it so differently. But we probably wouldn't. We would. Most of us are, are pretty much marked by our origins. And we can't change things very much. We probably make the same old mistakes that we made all along. It doesn't do any good to speculate about the past. We can never answer that question, Why? I think of the time when our Lord was walking through Jerusalem with his disciples and they saw this poor beggar, blind beggar along the road and they said to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be this way? And Jesus, in a sense, just dismissed their question. He said, this man is here so that the works of God can be manifest. Have you ever looked at yourself that way? Your, your damaged personality, your... Your, your body that you've hurt in various ways. All the things that you've, you've done 
to yourself that have, that have distorted your life, made things so difficult for you and for your mate and for your children. And you hark back to your beginnings and you say, it's all the fault of my parents. And, and the temptation is to get angry and bitter and resentful at them. That doesn't do any good. It doesn't hurt them. It only hurts us. The question is, what, what do we do with what we have right now? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, every disability conceals a vocation. Every flawed part of us is an opportunity for God to go to work. As, uh, as Jesus said of the, of the blind man, so this is simply a chance for the works of God to be manifest. And you see it in the life of Gideon. You know, here's a very flawed man. He made a lot of mistakes in his life, but yet God used him, used him greatly, used him to deliver Israel. He went down in history as one of the greatest of the judges, despite, despite the flaws in his, in his character. And uh, he's mentioned here in, in Hebrews in God's hall of, hall of Fame, along with these other great men and women that God greatly used. Listen to this, verse 32. I don't have time to tell you about Gideon. We know about him. He was a, an old idolater. Or Barak, we know about him. He was a chicken. Or Samson, we'll find out next week that he was a womanizer. Or Jephthah, tough street thug that God used in this remarkable way to, to deliver Israel. Or David, the most illustrious of all the kings. Or Samuel, the last of the judges and one of the greatest of the prophets. And all the rest of the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised. Listen to this. These were all committed for their faith. You understand what he's saying? God not only knows the patent facts of our lives, he knows the latent forces. He understands what's going on behind the scenes. And he's wonderfully patient, wonderfully caring. And Hebrews goes on to say, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You hear what he's saying? They weren't perfect in this life. They didn't live perfect lives. They made a lot of mistakes. And a lot of their mistakes were the result of things that had happened to them uh, early on in, in life, David, as a matter of fact, I'm convinced, was an illegitimate child. And uh, that was one of the things that marked him for life. He was a very violent, passionate man. He, he had his own drives and passions to, to deal with, and yet God used him greatly. What does all of this say to us? Well, number one, we need to simply accept our background. We can't do anything about it. Uh, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for harm. You know, the terrible things that happened to him. He's being kidnapped and sent off into Egypt. You meant it for harm. But God meant it for good. Now, it may be that your father who sexually abused you or the uncle or brother or whoever it was meant it for harm. It was an evil thing to do and God will have to take care of him or her in his own way and in his own time. That's, that's his business. But God means it for good. And that even those disabilities, the flaws, the shattered personalities, the ruined bodies, 
become an opportunity for God to manifest his works. You see. So what we have to do is simply offer ourselves to God and ask for guidance in how to put these bodies to his intended use. Let me read something that C.S. Lewis uh, wrote. And I need to wrap this up because we are going to spend some time around the Lord's table. But let me read. This is in uh, Mere Christianity. And this is in his chapter on good and bad people. And and what he says in the earlier part of the chapter is that good people really have it harder than bad people because um, they don't know why you have to drag God into their life. Uh, He says there's a a very real sense in which those that are rich in, in resources have it harder because they don't feel like they need any help. But on the other hand, there are those of us that he describes as nasty people. The little, low, timid, warped, thin-blooded, lonely people are the passionate, sensual, unbalanced people. Do you miss any of us? If they make any attempt at goodness at all, they learn in double-quick time that they need help. It is Christ or nothing for them. It is taking up the cross and following or else despair. They're the lost sheep. He came especially to find them. They are, in one very real and terrible sense, the poor whom he blesses. They're the awful set he goes about with. And, of course, the Pharisees say still, as they said from the first, if there were anything in Christianity, those people would not be Christians. There is either a warning or an encouragement here for every one of us. If you're a nice person, if virtue comes easily to you, beware. Much is expected from those to whom much is given. If you mistake for your own merits what are really God's gifts to you through nature, and if you're contented with simply being nice, you're still a rebel. And all those gifts will only make your fall more terrible, your corruption more complicated, your bad example more disastrous. The devil was an archangel once. His natural gifts were as far above yours as yours are above that of a chimpanzee. But if you're a poor creature, poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends, do not despair. He knows all about it. You're one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you're trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. One day he will fling it, that is our bodies, on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you have learned your driving in a hard school. Some of the last will be first, and some of the first will be last. I had the neatest thing happen this morning. I got through with the message, and a young man came up afterward, a young man that I know has, he's had a hard time of it. Life has been really difficult for him. And he said, when when I read those words of Lewis's about having a hard machine to drive, He envisioned himself trying to drive a thrashing machine down the road, and he kept wanting to go in the ditch. And Jesus got in the cab with him and said, move over, I'm going to drive. And I think that's what Lewis has in mind, and I know that's what the Lord has in mind for us. Just give him the machine.
Let him drive it. Oh, you'll go in the ditch sometimes because we'll want to take the wheel back. But God knows. He knows the patent facts and the latent forces that make you the person you are. Let's pray.